Hi, and welcome to the Dark Industry Podcast, season number four. The Dark Industry Podcast is a collaboration with the Programmers of Color Collective and What's Up With Dogs. It is funded by Creative Europe, the City of Leipzig, the BKM and MDM. We thank our partners and supporters for their contributions. Hey, and thank you for listening. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Doc Leipzig Industry Podcast. I'm Aisha Jamal. I'm a film program at the Hot Dogs Documentary Film Festival in Toronto, Canada, and a documentary filmmaker. My latest short film is called Field Notes, which is about my friend, a bird advocate living here in Toronto. Now, I'm going to be hosting today's discussion. Full disclosure, I propose the subject of talking about documentary films that have to do with museums and the politics of collecting and restitution, because I'm working on a film about this called The Theft. And the subject of museums is very much in the zeitgeist and particularly looking at restitution and the politics of collecting. I mean, in the festival circuit today, you have films like White Balls on Walls, which is about the State Lake Museum in Amsterdam. And my two guests who are joining me today to talk about this have also made films or are making films about museums, politics, collecting, restitution, both quite different, but definitely with some overlapping themes. So to get started, I would like to ask Samir Farouk, one of my guests here today, to introduce himself and tell us a little bit about his film, Museum Visits a Therapist. Samir, over to you. Yes. Hi, Aisha. It's so great to be here. Uh, my name is Samir Farouk. Um, I have recently completed a short experimental documentary with, in collaboration with Miriam Linschoten, a Dutch-based uh, artist. Uh, and it's it basically looks at the Tropen Museum in Amsterdam, one of the you know Holland's largest uh, museums of ethnology, anthropology. It's like a large encyclopedic museum, um, and we're really looking into trying to imagine the museum inside of a therapist's office and what that conversation would look like in light of the heritage of, of theft and colonial violence that the museum has participated in. Great. Thank you, Samir. And Marley McDonald is here today as well. And she's also working on a film to do with museums. Marley, if you could introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your film. Yes. Hello, I'm Marley McDonald. And I am currently developing and producing a feature-length documentary about natural history museums in America um, titled The Elephant in the Room. So using the film archives, but also extensive photo archives and written archives from these museums to explore the relationship between loss and preservation and asking these questions of what drives us to preserve, what we choose to preserve and how we go about that act of preserving. Great. Um, I want to just sort of start a little bit and talk about the kinds of museums you are both working on. And Samir, I wanted to ask you if you could tell us a little bit about the Tropen Museum and what attracted you initially to this particular museum in Amsterdam. Yeah, so um, the Tropen Museum is quite a an incredible institution. They have over 150,000 objects that they've collected um, from different places worldwide. As an artist, 
I'm always really drawn to um, these these vast sort of halls of knowledge where you can find interconnection between objects. And the Tropen Museum is very much that. It's, uh, you you know, in a single glance, you can kind of see the history of many parts of the world and, and, and many like tools and functions of human culture on display. Um, but of course, um, under that is a, is a more difficult story you know, I think the Tropen Museum is quite interesting is in that it has engaged with many um, artists and filmmakers and activists to really grapple with their history of collecting. Um, so a, a large reason why we worked there is that we were really given uh, the openness and almost carte blanche to spend two years observing and, and filming inside of the museum. So it was a, a really, really wonderful opportunity. Yeah, I think that's, you know, why it emerged uh, almost because it is this archetype of an encyclopedic museum, but also because of the, the willingness and openness of the museum to play with us as well. Mm -hmm. It's kind of interesting that all three of us are working on more encyclopedic museums. Like, even though my film is not about a specific museum, I am really interested in historical artifacts, which are mainly held by encyclopedic museums. And Marley, if you could tell us a little bit about why you are particularly interested in natural history museums. Well, I'll just add to that, that I also have a damning obsession with encyclopedic works. <laughs> so, and particularly, actually, even the first encyclopedia, Pliny's Natural History, has been a favorite of mine forever. So I've always been interested in natural history as the science. It's a very strange science that incorporates almost every other field of science. And the kind of main function of a natural history science is to present things outside of uh, academia. So it's like its function is to present things to the everyday person, um, which is why these natural history museums exist. Um, but for me, I am an acrylic painter and I have this deep fascination with representations of nature. And I find myself haunted by this question of how people present nature and how they take something as detailed as nature and like coherently represent it to the world. So that was something that I've always been interested in with the diorama displays in natural history museums. And then as an archival filmmaker, of course, I'm very fascinated with what we choose to preserve culturally. And so this museum movie kind of was born of those two artistic interests of mine. And I found this as a great platform to explore those mediums. Um, but more specifically, I was on YouTube and I came across a video of a man on the side of a boat with paintbrushes in his hand. And then these two hands come out of frame and place this giant tube over his head. And the next shot, he's oil painting a coral reef at the bottom of the sea. And I was like, what is this footage? And that's when I learned that there were reels and reels of film from the golden age of exploration. I'm using air quotes, which you can't here, but <laughs> I'll tell you I am, um, of these explorers going out across the world and excavating these fossils and artifacts and big game hunting, and then reels of films of people representing this, these objects sent back to the museum. So this felt like a perfect opportunity for me to explore those themes. 
I mean, interestingly, you're looking at an archive of film, then I know you're in the early stages, but I wonder why it is that you don't, I mean, are you planning on shooting anything or are you just working strictly with the archival that you found? So I think that the story is rooted in the archival, for sure. And I would say that the majority of the film will be told through archival just because this footage is truly unbelievable to me. I mean, I watch it with my mouth like wide open. I can't believe that this stuff has been recorded. Um, so it will remain mostly archival and using primary source documents as sort of a texture throughout. But I also envision some stop motion animation display, like diorama, using the techniques that were developed at the museums, these diorama displays to tell the stories with less visual information to pull from. Um, but yeah, there is just a wealth of of photos and footage, and it feels like it's just sitting there waiting for me to edit it. <laughs> <laughs> and this documentary, I mean, I think you start out with the intentions of making one thing, and then often it sort of morphs as you're working on it. And I guess that's something I wonder, because Samir, your film took a couple of years to make. So when you were setting out to make the film, what were some of the questions or sort of initial impulses that you had that you wanted to follow? Yeah, this is where I think documentary is really fascinating because it really allows you to observe a culture or observe a space in a very specific way. So when we went to the Tropen Museum, we I can't even remember. I think we had a very different film in mind. I, I you know, I think it it probably was going to be a, a little bit more thesis oriented towards like a specific history in the museum. But what ended up happening after the first year, uh, so we positioned ourselves in the museum and um, filmed regularly that year. And what we saw through the lens, through the camera, was a lot of bizarre behavior. So, um, and we were really focusing on the workers at the museum. So we saw an exacting perfectionism to all of the work. We saw repetitive gestures of cleaning, polishing, misting, um, you know, all these like repetitive actions of conservation. Uh, and we began to be very curious about that because that, you know, we just kept seeing it in each room, on each floor, um, even like the overall cleaning of the museum with the with the huge polishing machines, you know, every night going floor by floor. We began to see a lot of common elements between those repetitive gestures and gestures uh, or symptoms of obsessive compulsive disorder. So we began to really draw these parallels between like, what is the institution sort of, what, why is it building this repetitive momentum? What is it trying to rehearse? What is it trying to sort of cover over or obsess over? And then very quickly we started making these Uh, links between those gestures and the history that they were holding, the very, very heavy history that, that they were holding. And so I don't think any of these first realizations would have been possible if we didn't have a very long, quiet period of, of observation where we filmed without any intention and then we really sort of shared the footage um, And, you know, screened it and watched it together and, and saw all of that 
behavior coming to life in front of our eyes. And I love that you then want to take a therapeutic approach to the museum and introduce this thought of, or this idea of the therapist. So was that something that was there from the beginning or something that came out of that sort of observation? It really came out of that observation. And, and Miriam actually said it as a joke. She was like, oh my God, what if this museum could visit a therapist? I think it really needs it. And I was like, oh, that's a really beautiful premise for a film to really imagine what the character of the museum would sound like, you know, what the character of the therapist would sound like and, and how filmically to, to represent that. So, you know, ultimately we ended up doing also a lot of archival research um, and calling together the voice of the museum, like building the script of the voice of the museum through collectors, letters to and from the museum, missionary uh, diaries from that period where they collected a lot of their objects. Yeah, and, and, and soldiers in the area, Dutch soldiers in the area. So the voice of the museum is really the voice of three main groups of people who, who really formed um, the spirit of, of that particular museum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like how you talk about how that sort of evolves as you're working on your film, because it is documentary. You start with one idea and you end up somewhere else and you introduce something like a therapist then to it. Um, and Marley, I wanted to, you're at a very early stage with your film, but what are some of the questions that you want to pose of this footage that you found? Yeah, I actually, I was, I was listening to you talk about how that developed and very early in my thinking on how I was going to tell these stories, I knew that I wanted to pull from these primary sources, um, both archived at the museum and all of these people have written autobiographies and there's so much to work with, um, letters and, and journals. But I quickly imagined that this sort of overarching narration would exist for my film to tell these stories. A lot of these reels of film are uh, silent films. And so in order to tell the story, and they say so much. So there's a big part of me that just wants to play them, but I know that adding context will help. So I imagined it as, you know, having this narration, but immediately I was like, it can't just have one narrator. It needs to have a dialogue of narrators. There needs to be two narrators that can kind of pass back this, you know, investigator, storyteller, student, teacher dynamic, um, which I've come to realize might be like a mimic of the way that I like to go through museums with someone else and having this discussion as we're, you know, moving through these spaces. And so I was so taken with your film and how there was this back and forth. And I actually had a, a big question on how you created that character, because what took me about it was that it was so dimensional. It wasn't a flat character at all um, in your film. And I was so drawn to hearing this, you know, this person processing, this person being the embodiment of the museum. And so I was really curious about how you developed that, that voice and like that tone. Yeah, you know, thank you so much for, for, yeah, for watching and, and for asking that. We, we really wanted to breathe a lot of empathy into the character. You know, I think we're at a time, very polarizing time politically, where you're either trying to hold on to the status quo and the, the, 
you know, the, the, the institution that you're a part of or, or really burn it down and restructure. And we really were committed to creating a sort of middle path. And that middle path arose from understanding that the soldiers who were um, sometimes 17, 18-year-old boys who were shipped from rural parts of the Netherlands to Papua in, in this case and had had never left their their town, you know, let alone their country. And then were really expected through, you know, coercive power to, you know, to enact various forms of violence and theft on the lands that they arrived in. So, you know, they were sort of also very much implicated in this project. You know, I think the collector is a bit of like a, you know, maybe a less uh, less empathetic character. They're just looking to make a deal with the museum. They're on the ground and they're really using the inroads created by missionaries uh, to get to the collections, to get to villages that have valuable goods, um, to grab whatever they can grab and send it back to the museum. Um, and then the missionaries, well, you know, they're there on a spiritual <laughs> sort of calling, trying to, you know, convert the world toward, or th- that part of the world to their idea of, of God. So it's a very complicated story. And, you know, we wanted the, the character to sound complex, like we all are, how we all contain multitudes. And, and you know, all must begin speak having moments where they spoke very confidently, but then also having moments where they really contradicted themselves or felt very angry with themselves or uh, felt degrees of shame for what they did. So it's, it's definitely, yeah, it's, it's definitely a character that we wanted to breathe a lot of empathy and complexity in. And I would extend that to the museum. You know, it's a space that, is so problematic, but it's also a space that's so full of wonder and connection. So, you know, as an artist, um, and, you know, Marley, I I know that you, you know, have that complexity in your film as well, Um, you know, between um, these modes of preservation that are so blunt and so cruel, but then also this artistic expression and adherence to um, realist, realistic mold making, like just that pure artistry, as you say, of like recreating that spirit of nature um, in these dioramas. Like, I think I see that contradiction happening a lot in your film as well, that divide between like cruelty and aesthetic um aesthetic pleasure or aesthetic sensuality yeah absolutely i mean that's awesome that you were able to get that from the sizzle i sent you it it's very much why i think i went with this idea of two narrators so that they could be asking the questions and this kind of duality of the beauty and the problems could exist coexist and hopefully find the nuance of the story and I think with archival films, it's particularly difficult um, to try to reckon with a past morality with our modern morality. And that is like something that I'm 
I'm just circling around constantly, you know, how it, how you can be empathetic and try to understand without actually existing in that moment and having that same morality and approaching it from the present day um, is something I find like to be a massive challenge and something I'm excited about exploring. Yeah, and I kind of want to ask you to follow up on that a bit, because if we were to probe a bit more, what are some of the ethical concerns that you already see with the collection of the natural history museums? Yeah, I would say the one thing that I kind of keep coming back to is these people did want to preserve the world. They wanted to save the world. They were interested in nature and they were interested in wilderness and they found it beautiful and they they wanted to bring that image back to people in New York City. And that in and of itself is a beautiful quest, I think, to, to say if these people could access this view, maybe they would find interest in preserving this wilderness. Um, but the act of doing that required killing. And in fact, the museum in so many ways is a moratorium to species that no longer exist. And I find that like dualism and contradiction really fascinating and and something that I'm trying to dig deeper in is like the psyche of these explorers who thought that by killing these animals, they would then create some sort of movement in the world that would help save them. Samia, I want to sort of throw that question at you as well, because um, thinking about the Tropen Museum and all of the, you know, you focus particularly on one particular pole that's being restored in the film. And I wondered uh, what were some of the thoughts you had about, you know, the ethics of the collection of the Tropen Museum? Well, you know, in the Tropen Museum, it is a little bit, it, it's a it's a little bit cl clearer what's going on. I mean, I think... What you see a lot of, and there's a there's a there's a room in the Tropen Museum that shows all of the products that are available in the colonies and what you can do with them. So a lot was really tied in with economic development. Um, a lot was, you know, there were, the museum was also the collection helped people who wanted to further the colonial project and move from the Netherlands to Indonesia or Papua, Papua, where we were focusing on to sort of uh, show them that a life, what life was like there and that it was possible to have a life there. So, it, you know, the collection really performed very different functions depending on the, the, the time that where the, where the Netherlands was politically at you know, at these moments. So, for example, there was a period uh, where it switched to an interest in international development. So then the museum collection started championing fundraising activities for people to send money towards these the global south and, and into these areas in need. And the, and the museum and its collection became a champion of like, we need to preserve these cultures that are facing poverty. Uh, and now I would suggest, you know, I think it's still an economic impulse. I think a lot of these museums try to get bodies through the door and try, try to sort of 
survive as industries in their own right. You can think about the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Royal Ontario Museum here in Toronto. I mean, these are finely tuned machines, you know, to support the the livelihoods of the people who work there. And what I saw a lot at the Tropen Museum is that exhibition design and specifically high-tech exhibition design is really fueling the tech industry in the in the Netherlands and in, you know, adjacent countries in Europe. So you look at the um like the credits of a museum of a of a specific exhibition and it's all like touchscreen companies or surround sound companies or you know speaker companies you know so it's it's kind of interesting like to follow the trails of like what these institutions the funds they generate and then where that money goes toward and i don't necessarily think it's always about um telling narratives of you know stories from around the world i think it's it's <laughs> it's far it's it's what's the word it's it's yeah uh, far more cynical than that mm, yeah i mean that's i mean certainly museums began as one thing and are very different in our contemporary world and i think as i was saying in the introduction that restitution and museums and museum politics are really in the zeitgeist and you know, I know that you, Samir, and Marley are both, you know, artists that work in other mediums as well. Samir, you're a visual artist. Marley, you paint. Um, and I wondered, what drew you to wanting to look at this particular subject or this particular location and its collection through the medium of documentary? Samir, maybe you want to start, or Marley, either one of you. Uh, yeah, for me, I mean, it's quite simple. Documentary allowed a, a prolonged gaze. It allowed us to spend a lot of time observing and then gleaning patterns within the museum to learn from and to then respond to. Marley, what about you? What is it about, you know, looking at this collection or in particular through documentary yeah, I mean, for me, this project really sparked because there is footage of it. And mm. so it was a film from the beginning um, because that's what drew me into telling the story. And, you know, the way that I use documentaries in my own life is this, I like what you say, a prolonged gaze. And for me, it's a prolonged exploration. It's giving myself the time um, to explore and think about these big ideas that I want to learn more about. And I think documentary is the best tool that I've found for giving myself that space to explore these ideas. Yeah, I mean, time is certainly something you need and also <laughs> sometimes working against us in documentary. Oh, just absolutely. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's always against the clock. <laughs> Um, I guess I wanted to also think about time and think about buried time and buried histories. Um, can you talk a little bit about working with archives and looking at what's there and what is not there in a sense? Um, because I think that's also really interesting in particular when you're looking at objects and looking at museums. Um, Samir, what were some of the thoughts you had about buried histories in particular in relation to the Tropen Museum and... Yeah, so in, I mean, in a lot of my work, I'm I'm trying to illuminate 
sort of buried histories that are not told. And of course, the obvious answer are, you know, in terms of like more marginalized communities, as I'm sure we can imagine. And this is an issue, as Marley said, we like we really adopt the sort of zeitgeist of the time. So, you know, in a lot of these museums, we're adopting certain attitudes from a century ago. But for me, I'm also really interested in things that the museum cannot capture. So there's issues of ephemerality, perishability, you know, things that that can't really be preserved or represented on a plinth or in a display case. So that's really interested me. And these institutions, they claim to sort of narrate our past in a very rich way. But if we can't really, you know, understand that, for example, a certain type of food was very central to the livelihood, you know, of a certain culture, and there's no, you know, remnants of that, or there's no space in the museum to represent that. Or, you know, I think oral histories that are that are lost, that's a very sort of big challenge that I often think about, or performance and ritual, you know, there's all of these things that just can't be captured by the by the museum as as we have it now. Uh, So these are the buried histories. I think that I think about the most. Yeah, I tend to think of museums themselves as like almost representations of buried history. You walk through them and you're called to want to know more, like so little information can be translated in that space. Not, I don't mean to say so little information, but certainly most information is lacking (laughs) when you are looking at a recreation through a diorama display or an artifact, you know, there's only so much space given to the history of that object. And so for me, it's like, what museums are are buried histories. And that's what fascinates me about them is like you get the sort of front facing view of what they're telling you. And I just need to go that next level deeper. And that's sort of why I love to go to museums is getting interested in the world and then taking it upon myself to dig deeper into the research and really figure out what I'm looking at. Um, And I agree that this like, what we lose in these embodied visions, you know, and particularly in my case, these embodied visions of nature that embody a very hyper-specific perspective, you know, um, is life. And I'm so fascinated by this idea of like representing this image of a beautiful landscape and a beautiful animal in this very sterile environment. And the details are gorgeous and you can stand there and look at it for for hours. And I've read something somewhere where someone has said that dioramas are like moving images, but we are the people moving through the image because the details emerge the longer you stand and look at these. Um, But it becomes this separation of the reality. And, you know, I'm very interested also in this idea of like the preservation of preservation. And a lot of these diorama displays demand a a large amount of preservation of preservation, repainting the fur, repainting the backgrounds um, and upkeep. Um, And that's something that I think is 
something you don't think about when you're walking through the museum. And it is in itself a buried history that people have to continually keep these things um, in their immaculate condition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's something that, Samir, your film dwells on a bit is this preservation or this act of preservation where you see someone, sort of the museum worker, really take their time and, as you say, in this OCD way, really work with the pole that they're preserving. Why was that sort of an act that you were so interested in? Because preservation is a large part of Marley's film, but also yours. Yeah, I think this is really where our two films meet is around the role of the conservator or the, you know, whoever's tasked to preserve, care for and maintain these objects. You know, I think what I mean, what first of all really interested us is just the science around it is just very beautiful to watch. I mean, I didn't know all of these tools existed, you know, they have various ways of like removing dirt from objects in a you know in a way that doesn't damage the object but i think more interesting to me is some of these original questions that marley was posing on conservation which is which is really like linked to a fear of death a fear of losing something uh having to sort of kill something to pre- you know, to, to keep, to keep the idea alive. And I noticed that, you know, a lot in the, in, in making the film and, and really, really began to question that maybe so much of the work in museums that have, has to be done actually has to be around letting go, uh, around grieving objects that are leaving, you know, training museum directors and staff about letting go and grieving, let's say, something um, back to its original community where it's been taken from. Um, And I think this whole idea that we have to, like, pump something so full of, like, fluid and, like, kind of keep it looking alive for its entire life, we, we, we have to very quickly get over it and you know really start to understand that maybe this is a very very this is a very inherited old-fashioned way of thinking and i mean our film really focused on the bish pole which is this funerary pole in papuan among the asmat people in papuan society and the pole is meant to be planted in the forest and disintegrate and slowly return back to the land and so that's a beautiful example of like some an object completing its life cycle. But instead, the Tropen Museum, you know, has has collected many of them and has preserved them beautifully to look um, beautiful and perfect and be on display forever. So to me, this is the sort of the crux of of both of our research. You know, that's I think where it gets very it gets very almost spiritual. It gets almost, it, it's really the big question, I think. Yeah. To, to just follow up on that, I find myself in this very unique position of wanting to craft a film mostly through archival, which is itself a preservation and has taken many people to preserve it over the years and deem it important and save it and restore it. And you know, do fresh transfers of 4K film from these reels. And so I'm in this like kind of loop 
I feel, with the museums where using these archives to represent this story, I'm in a way like mimicking the museum in its attempt to represent the world. And I feel this like strange kind of push and pull with this fact that I'm also engaging in the same sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's like uh, very interesting because at the same time you're criticizing it and then reenacting it. And and I think, Samir, speaking of this object, I think you, you also uh, told me sort of the interesting story that, you know, the museum treats it like a dead history almost. They're preserving this pole, which actually was supposed to live and then disintegrate in nature. But uh, you had this beautiful moment where your film actually screened to the people that had made that pole, or the, I guess an their ancestors had made this pole. Um, if you could just briefly tell us about how your film came back around to the asthma people. Yeah, so our film was accepted into a festival called Papuan Voices Film Festival. When it screened there, there were various members of the Asmat community who were present. According to the festival organizers during the Q&A, we, we unfortunately couldn't be there. But during the Q&A, a member of the community was very surprised that the polls were at the Tropen Museum in the Netherlands, they didn't know. So it really made us think about processes of repatriation and how, you know, there's, there's even before sort of a community calling for an object to return, there's a lot of work to be done about even making a community aware that the, that a museum would have held their objects, it, it, it made it seem like they were sincerely, sincerely shocked that this funerary pole was in the Netherlands. It was very, very surprising to them. Um, so, yeah, to us, it just illuminated that there's such a gap between the everyday life of this person and... Um, the the everyday practices of the Tropen Museum. There's there's a huge gap. Was there any information on how the pole actually ended up in the museum? Yeah. So um, part of the script was really digging into Carl Grunewald, who was the main collector in the region. So there was a fair bit of documentation around the work he had done. He was basically a middleman. So he lived in the area and he was in touch with Dutch museums and he basically functioned as a buyer. So he would buy, take, coerce, um, you know, individuals to give give over their objects and then organize sort of the, the ships that were heading back to the Netherlands. And we found very interesting letters between him and the, at the time, the director of the Tropen Museum. And, you know, one of the quotes that I'll always remember is the museum director telling him to grab everything you can grab. The museum will take it all. <laughs> so it was quite, quite overt. It's interesting because it sounds like that kind of shocks you a bit, but, but you've been working on the subject of museums for a long time in different mediums um, as well, Samir. And I wondered if after working on this film, you've been seeing museums differently or has there been something that has really sort of changed in how you think about the museum, even though it's a subject that you've thought about and worked on for quite a long time? You know, what this 
film really told me, I think it really focused on the, the effect on museum workers. So the role of conservators, the role of curatorial staff, the roles of director. And it, you know, it made me really understand that the museum is a very complex machine and it's composed of various actors with differing and often contradictory interests. So when we wage actions on museums, I think it's really important to understand, you know, what part of the museum that you're waging an action against, you know, is it development and fundraising? Is it the curatorial staff? You know, these are groups that all have very different values, but they're somehow brought together to bring this institution alive. You know, and the other thing that I really, you know, this film made me pause and really think about is I obviously have a strong criticality toward museological or museum practices and collecting based practices that they're often really dirty and and very unknown, like why things have come to where they, you know, where they landed. But at the same time, you know, as Marley just mentioned, they are places that help us really make connections with our with our present lives. You know, they're 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 really, really they're they're spaces of cross pollination, of you know, experimenting with ideas. Um yeah, I was just visited the the Metropolitan Museum in New York um, in the fall. And it was so incredible to see what was being made in the fifth century in, in Italy and what was being made in the fifth century in Afghanistan, you know? So I don't know any other places that you could make those connections so quickly. So yeah, where I stand now is I'm quite in the middle, you know, I think... I think these spaces should still exist, but there definitely can be increased calls for better practice and for repatriation as well. I know, Marley, you're sort of at the beginning, we can't really ask you what has changed yet, but I wonder if you sort of have a working thesis that you're going into your film with about museums. Oh, geez. Yeah. Um, this is this is a question that I ask myself often at this stage in the process. What is the thesis? Um, yeah, I think kind of going back to what I was saying about the vision that a lot of these people, the actors in the museum had for this space to engage people in understanding kind of the world that they don't have access to and showing them what it's like Um I know that it has been successful in that in so many ways. I mean, there are many, many scientists who say, well, I went to the Museum of Natural History in New York, and that's when I started studying the stars. That's when I got interested in it as a child. And I think that there is this relationship specifically to science museums and children and engaging you in this world and learning about these things um, that I find very beautiful and I think is a necessary cultural space. Um, but it's hard to say where that's going to go. <laughs> There's a lot, a lot more digging to do a lot more digging in the hist in the buried histories 
um, to be done. Yeah, I hear you. I feel the same way. I've been working on my film for like two years now, and I really know it'll be a few more years and it keeps changing and it keeps turning. So it'll be interesting to hear where you arrive, Marley. Yeah. Marley, in your sizzle reel, you do show us um, sort of a little bit of what goes behind the displays and the work of the museum itself. Can you talk a little bit about the artistry and the artists that we see that, you know, perform all of these different acts of, you know, preserving the animal, but creating the exhibits? And it was beautiful to see that in the footage that you have. Yeah, that is something that immediately drew me to this project is examining sort of this human desire to create simulated worlds. And I think that's something that we're seeing happening a lot today um, through technology and different, the metaverse, for example. Um, and I am interested how we've always tried to do this. And specifically watching that tape that you're referencing, the actual act of painting rocks and wiring up trees, I found to be so, so beautiful. And to me, I think that these displays try to embody this sort of vision of Eden, this world untouched by human hands. And what that real reveals is that this is all a reflection of our own vision of nature. This is our fabrication of reality. And, you know, a lot of these museums are born in this time, born into the Industrial Revolution and of the Industrial Revolution, this time where we had been fabricating our reality and separating ourselves from nature. And so I think that this like vision was an attempt to capture this time before we had done that, before we had separated ourselves from nature, but comes to stand as almost a shrine to the technology available to create these diorama displays. Um, you know, the idea of the shrinking globe and being able to travel across the world and hunt an elephant is an absolutely new idea at this time. And so it does it does sort of sandwich this science within a history. And I think that's that's absolutely fascinating and something I I intend to explore. Well, thank you, Samir Farouk and Marley McDonald, for your very generous, generous answers. And I also want to say a big thank you to Annalise for so gracefully orchestrating today's recording. <laughs>